We are seeing technologies advance in more sophisticated ways. We are seeing prices fall, which leads to faster and more market penetration. We tried to use, as a case example, you can do this for any field, but we, we tried to just take a look at liberal arts majors. This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Jacob Bray. This episode of In the Know was recorded at our annual Congress last month when Michelle Wee spoke about the future of work. Michelle is Strata Education Network's Senior Vice President of Workforce Strategies and serves as Chief Innovation Officer for the Strata Institute for the Future of Work, which is dedicated to advancing the understanding of the future of learning and work to build the learning ecosystem of the future. Michelle's research focuses on the future of the workforce and how to connect student learners more directly to meaningful employment pathways throughout their working lives. I thought she had some interesting things to say. I hope you enjoy. One of the most popular design thinking and team building activities is this thing called the Marshmallow Challenge. And what happens is you give teams 20 pieces of spaghetti noodles, a little bit of twine, a little bit of masking tape, sometimes a pair of scissors, and a marshmallow. And you give teams a very short amount of time to build the tallest, to build the tallest possible tower they can. The only caveat is you have to put the marshmallow on top to win. Now they've done studies on this and some of the worst performers at this activity are business school students. They spend a lot of time analyzing the problem, orienting around it, and then vying for control. What happens is they start running out of time and they hastily begin to build their tower. And at the very last second, they try to put their marshmallow on top. And of course, the towers all fall. The people who do the best at this activity are children. They're kindergartners. And the reason why is because they immediately begin prototyping. They start building some small structures. They put the marshmallow on top. The structure falls. They experiment again. They iterate. They prototype. They build again. When it comes to the future of learning and work, I fear that we tend to act a little bit more like the business school students. We tend to analyze the problem and orient around it, right? And part of the challenge is that we're often faced with data like this. I want you to take a look at the leftmost line and the rightmost line. Okay, these are just illustrating the different sorts of adoption curves when it comes to technology. On the leftmost side, it shows you how slow, it how slow the adoption curve was for the analog telephone. So if you think about it, in the US alone, it took approximately 76 years for the analog telephone to hit approximately 50% of the US population. That rightmost line shows us the adoption curve of the mobile phone. It took less than 10 years for the mobile phone to hit 75% of the global population. Right? So when you feel like the velocity of technological change is different today, it's because it is. We are seeing technologies advance in more sophisticated ways. We are seeing prices fall, which leads to faster and more market penetration. This is what people talk about when they talk about exponential futures. I'm sure many of you have heard of Moore's Law, which simply states that this is the the doubling of the rate of computing power every 18 months to two years. 
And we've literally watched that happen over time since the 1890s. There's actually been a trillion-fold increase in computing power. So it's this phenomenal kind of future that we're faced with. And at the same time, you have analysts telling us that anywhere from 8 to 47% of the US workforce is at risk of obsolescence because of computerization or automation. 8 to 47%. That is a wide gamut that we are dealing with, right? That is a huge range of uncertainty. As people are trying to figure out what are the ramifications of all of this automation, all of this machine learning, this artificial intelligence, or this deep learning? And how are we supposed to prepare for all the jobs that don't even exist yet, right? And we can sense that the future of learning is looking different already because we see that our learners are different. The whole idea of a non-traditional student has just become completely moot, right? As over 70% of our college-going population fits under this misnomer today, right? They all have part-time jobs, multiple part-time jobs, sometimes full-time jobs. They have families. They have caregiving activities and responsibilities. They have ties to a geographic region. They have a lot of life that gets in the way of their pursuit of a degree. And then we need to square some of that data with some crazy data coming out from our experts on aging and longevity. At Harvard Medical School, there is actually a researcher who is working on stopping the aging process completely. And he thinks he's onto something. His biomarkers have actually gone down over the last 10 years as he's been experimenting with different molecules. Other futurists are saying that the first people to live to be 150 years old have already been born. Let's just think about that for a moment. Does that suddenly mean that our work lives are going to become 80 or 100 years long, right? Suddenly, <laughs> it's hard to fathom with even a slightly more extended life, even if we make it to 100. It's hard for us to imagine that suddenly the sort of linear pathway of education, work, and retirement will hold. And it's really hard to fathom that two, four, or six years of learning will somehow last us a longer lifetime. We already know today that early baby boomers experience 12 career transitions by the time they retire. How many more might we expect to experience over an 80 or 100 year work life? Our systems are not set up to facilitate seamless movements in and out of learning and work. We know that we are going to have to harness the power of education throughout our working lives. But if we think about currently, today, our system, we do not offer a whole lot of on and off ramps in and out of learning and work. In fact, in education, if you decide to take an off ramp and you stop out, you are stigmatized as a dropout. And then you're punished further with some student loan debt. If you take time out of the workforce, that gap on your resume looks questionable to your future employer. We do not offer a variety of highways with lots and lots of on and off ramps. Even some of the most innovative pathways we have today are still too rigid for our adult learners and all of us to leverage as we try to remain relevant in this future of work. We can't necessarily extrapolate from where we are today to even meet the needs of the workforce of 2030 or 2040. 
Because how in the world will we facilitate 20 or 25 job transitions when we make even the first one so difficult for our graduates? So a lot of times you hear these kinds of stories about underemployment, right? It's this notion that you are employed in a job that doesn't necessarily require a college degree. And you see this with newly minted grads, right? You see them working at tar uh, Target or selling coffee at Starbucks, and we think, yeah, but that's just a small minority of our student population. They will find their footing soon, and then they will be off to the races with their careers. So we tried to do some analysis on this phenomenon to understand, is this truly a big deal or not? And what we found in, a, in, a, in an analysis of four million unique resumes over a 10-year period of time is that 43% of our college graduates, our bachelor's degree holders, actually do end up underemployed. That number in itself is not actually that stunning because it aligns with some Fed data that is already out there. What was more remarkable was that as we looked at it over this sort of longitudinal period, we realized that if you started off underemployed, you were five times more likely to remain underemployed five years out. And 75% of that population actually remained underemployed 10 years out. So underemployment is not just some sort of blip on the radar. It can be this permanent detour with huge ramifications, not just financial, although those are significant as well. Because on average, these graduates are earning approximately $10,000 less per year. But we also have to think about all the lost connections too, right? The inability for them to develop social capital and build professional networks so that they can thrive and make more transitions in that future ahead of them. So meanwhile, you have this, this persistent problem, this rut of underemployment that we have to deal with. And then you have policymakers, educators, and employers all arguing about what then are the skills that you need in order to thrive in this future of work. And a lot of the literature on the future of work tends to focus on this idea that there are certain things that we just have to relinquish to the robots and the computers. And it makes sense. There are certain things that robots just can do better than we can, right? There are certain automated processes that they can do and make safer for humans. So as we think about coordinating better with these computers in the future, people have said, well, we need to leverage our uniquely human skills, like empathy, complex critical thinking, high emotional intelligence, right? And, it's this, and it makes sense. It makes intuitive sense. Maybe you know, if Watson can diagnose us with 99% certainty, that we have a certain illness, we're not necessarily gonna want Watson to tell us that we're sick. There's a lot of different names we have for these human skills, right? Transferable skills, non-cognitive skills, soft skills is kind of the predominant one, workforce competencies, 21st century skills. And in fact, we are seeing increased demand out there from employers in job postings for these uniquely human skills. In just a six-month, first six-month period of 2018, last year, we looked at 36 million job postings, and the most common skills in demand were, in fact, those human skills, like communications, leadership, problem solving. John Oliver had this great, uh, great um, bit on his show where he, where he described some of these skills a little bit in more detail. 
I do. What can you do? That is actually a good question. You can do a series of non-routine tasks that require social intelligence, complex critical thinking, and creative problem solving, okay? Okay. Okay, can you repeat that back to me? I want to do a series of non-routine tasks. I want to do a series of non-routine tasks. Tasks? Tasks. I feel like you're doing a British accent there, Zoe. That requires social intelligence. That requires social intelligence. Complex critical thinking. What? Complex critical thinking. And creative problem solving. And creative problem solving. And creative problem solving. That's what you've got to do in the future, Zoe. Okay. Yeah. Okay, is that a deal? We did it! I, like, don't know what it means. Okay. And I think that is one of the major problems that we have, is that we don't know exactly what these things mean. Because, in fact, educators and employers are actually saying that they value the same outcomes and yet we have a huge disconnect in which our learners are not able to translate their skills into the language of the labor market. We don't have a common language. And so what we did in a recent report is we tried to use, as a case example, you can do this for any field, but we, we tried to just take a look at liberal arts majors as a case example. Because when it comes to policymakers in particular, there tends to be a fair amount of dumping on the liberal arts, right? That it's a valueless degree, that it doesn't have that kind of ROI. And what's fascinating is that the future of work literature seems to be valuing what sounds a whole lot like liberal arts competencies, right? The things that John Oliver was talking about. And yet, what we're seeing is that, in fact, in the US, we're seeing a decline of people who are opting in to the programs that cultivate some of those really important liberal arts competencies. In fact, learners are seeing that the better way, the better way forward is to move into a more career-oriented major. They're moving much more heavily into healthcare, business, and some uh, STEM fields. And so what does it mean that we have these skills that are more in demand, and yet we have a decline of the cultivation of the people who might be able to uh, build some of those skills? What we found fascinating is that some of the people who were the most down on the liberal arts were the liberal arts majors themselves. We have been interviewing over 350,000 Americans over the last few years with Gallup. And what we found is that liberal arts majors were some of the most negative about their perception of the relevance of their majors in terms of whether it was helpful for their careers and whether they were actually developing life skills. Part of the problem is that what we don't do well for our learners is really under, help them understand and get visibility into the potential trajectory of where they're headed with what they are studying. And now with real-time labor market data, we can actually so, show uh, in granular detail how these trajectories actually manifest by marrying these job postings data with social profile and resume data. And we've actually found that liberal arts majors fare well in the market. They do well. They actually are quite mobile in a unique way. From their first to their second job, they move more than any other major in, in terms of what domain they move from and to. Whereas if you compare it to something like IT, most of them stay within that field. What's fascinating too is by their third job, they actually do escape the rut of underemployment. They make it into higher skilled, high wage, high demand careers by their third job. 
What they do not do, however, is outcompete their STEM peers. So we cannot continue to tell our learners that 20 years from now they will see the huge benefits and they will be out earning their, their peers. They start out behind and they end behind their STEM peers. But what is fascinating is in their 30s and 40s, they experience the fastest wage growth compared to any other major out there. We also see, in a fascinating way, the top five, 10 pathways that these majors actually move. When we actually look at longitudinal data and we follow learners through the workforce, we see how they move into fields like marketing, advertising, and public relations, or sales, or education. And the reason why this is extremely helpful is if we go back to the problem of we don't have a common language, we keep saying we need great communicators, and we keep saying we're building great communicators, and yet people are not necessarily getting the good jobs, one of the reasons now that we can do something better for our learners is if we know the pathways that they are making it into, we can start to break down what these skills actually entail. And it's not just human skills alone that will win the day. What we realize is it's a mix of human plus. It's not STEM or the humanities. It's not hard or soft. It's both and. It's human and technical. So when you take a skill like communication and you look at the learners and the kinds of skills that they are acquiring in the workforce along the way, we see that when they go into marketing, they are expressing that skill of communication through things like brand management, storytelling, search engine optimization. When they're in behavioral health, it looks different. It's crisis intervention, it's grief counseling. Whereas in HR, they better be ready to write some handbooks and do some onboarding and recruiting. The same goes for something like problem solving, right? We all want critical thinkers, problem solvers, but what does that mean? In finance, it looks a little bit more like forecasting and strategic planning. In marketing, crisis communications. In HR, it might be succession planning. And this is really helpful for learners to understand in terms of how they need to translate some of their skills now into the language of the labor market. And some of these skills are not necessarily skills that they can learn at the last minute right before they're about to graduate. Some of these need to be embedded through work-based learning opportunities and internships and apprenticeships. Sometimes they're gonna to have to go to a boot camp or take some MOOCs or look at some OERs in order to develop some of these skills. Take a field like journalism. One would think if we're preparing our learners for a field like journalism, you have to be a great writer and a great communicator, right? But journalism today actually looks a whole lot more like an IT field. And our learners have to be prepared that this is the enormity of demand for skills in web analytics, right? Google Analytics, some, some grasp of JavaScript or CSS. They have to know how to do a little bit of data visualization with, with tools like Tableau. If not, it's going to be a rough start as we hand them off into their careers. So human skills alone are not, are not enough, right? It's this human plus, and it sounds a whole lot like the idea of a T-shaped learner, right, that was popularized in the 1990s. That you need to have some broad-based foundational knowledge with a little bit of that vertical technical expertise. And it is, but this concept alone is insufficient for us as we think about the future of work. Because as we deal with the multiple transitions to come, we are going to have to facilitate either the broadening of our human skills and the practicing of those human skills, as well as the development of those pieces of technical expertise. Because we also have to remember that just because some of these skills are uniquely human doesn't mean that they are actually innate within us, 
right? We need to practice empathy. We need to practice communication and collaboration. We generally don't know how to work well together, right? So how do we actually build and facilitate different kinds of learning experiences that allow for that broadening as well as that vertical expertise? The reason why this is inordinately critical is that it is not just our younger learners that we have to think about in terms of that failure to launch and making and facilitating transitions. Today, we have 44 million Americans in the US who are already being left behind. And what I mean by this is they are age 25 to 65. They are either underemployed, unemployed. They are not thriving in the labor market. They are not earning a living wage. They are not earning at least $35,000 as an individual or $70,000 to sustain a family of four. The reason why this is so important is that if you are someone like our 44 million who only has a high school degree at most and doesn't have any sort of post-secondary training, you are 50% more likely to live in poverty than those with some post-secondary training. And those effects actually manifest in a generational way. They get passed on to our children. So only two out of 25 children who are born into low-income households make it to the top rungs of our economic ladder. This was the phenomenal work of MacArthur Genius Award winner Raj Chetty, that these effects are being passed on to our children. But Chetty also teaches us that if we invest in uplifting these learners in particular, more women, minorities, and children from low-income families, if we have them inventing at the same rate as white men, the innovation rate in the US would quadruple. Our society would flourish, right? But right now, that, that disconnect is so profound. So I thought it would be helpful for you to hear a little bit from the people themselves. I was laid off, and for the first time, the relevance of not having a degree became manifest because even though I had years upon years, over 20 years of experience doing all these different things, the first question they were asking is, so where'd you go to school? One thing we didn't talk about at home was education. I never thought about college. Everybody I work with has a degree, and I don't want to be the only one who doesn't. Being an educator, a museum educator, right? You people eventually want you to have some kind of degree, even if that's not where you got most of your learning from. It's, it represents something to people. I knew that in order to make a livable wage, uh, at the time I think they were paying me like a little over uh, minimum wage, which you, know, you can't live on if you wanted to. I knew that I needed more. I needed to put something in front of my name or behind my name to one, separate myself from being a criminal and also to make me legitimate in some ways. I got accepted to a few schools. I didn't go. The guidance counselors, if you weren't that kid who they had their eyes on, you fell through the cracks. I mean, when I went to orientation, it was crazy. It was overwhelming. I saw all these young people like sitting next to me and I was like, I do not belong here. Like, what am I doing? You know, these are kids that are coming out of high school and I'm, I can be their mother. That's what I'm going to be in the classroom. And I really don't want to be that. Plus, I have experience. You know, I have experience. I don't have a paper that can show that I have knowledge. 
when you start off, um, unfortunately, in a public school system, sometimes the education that you receive and transferring into a college setting sets you up to take a bunch of classes that don't even count. They put me in very remedial classes, um, you know, like your, your starter kit. If you have a GED, these are the basic classes that you have to take that basically were like, what's four plus four? Um, so it wasn't that boost of confidence that I needed. I can say yes or no. You know, have you ever been convicted? That question on the application, the box, that right? the box, right? Yeah. So that question comes up. So I'm just like, how am I supposed to succeed? Like, and everything's keeps you stuck. Like you can only do so much. They want me to work doing construction, like mindless work, but that's not me. I'm not. I can work with my hands, but my mind is not being. It's not being fed. My mind needs to be fed for me to feel like I'm encouraged, like I'm involved in something. Like I can't just show up to work and just build a building that's just not that's not it's not my DNA. I need to be called out, I need to be spoken to, I need to be able to reach out to somebody. I have to have constant communication because that's just the way I learn. I don't know, you know, it's different. I I cannot do things. I cannot academically cannot do it on my own. I have spent so much time on ZipRecruiter and Glassdoor and Indeed that the last time I actually had to go looking for a job we did things like talk to people face-to-face, -face, and that's completely gone now. You just submit your resume and cover letter via a website, and you never talk to anyone. There's no personality. There's no personalization of it, and you just end up getting put into a slot. And as a result, they don't know who you are. They just look at, has he gone to school? No. So then you go into that pile. So I'm sure a lot of those learners sound like the learners that you all teach and engage with on a daily basis. I think what is different about the kinds of learners we are going to continue to see coming to us is again, as we think about that extended work life and we think about the kinds of on and off ramps we facilitate today, we are going to have to begin designing an actual new learning ecosystem to facilitate these seamless movements in and out of learning and work. And the reason why I think it has to be new is because even though you hear these learners talk about the need for a degree, right, the need for some letters behind their name or something to justify that they have the knowledge, we also have to be doing a whole lot more experimentation on other sorts of pathways because sometimes a certificate or cert a certification, a two or a four-year degree, is going to be a bridge too far for these learners who need on demand, just in time, the thing that is going to help them make progress in their lives. So as we think about the design, designing this learning ecosystem for the future, we believe that there are five core elements that any stakeholder, and the reason why we call it an ecosystem is it's not just educators, right? We have workforce training, we have economic developers, we have policymakers, we also have non-living things like policies and ed tech. Right? We have a lot of things that are interdependent and interconnected, and there's a whole lot that needs to be done in bringing solutions, a lot of the point solutions that are out there today, in service of these learners. Because those learners are also going to be us in the future as well. Right? If we design for our most vulnerable learners, we will actually benefit all. And so one of the first things that this learning ecosystem has to be able to do is it has to show us the way. And what that means is we need some sort of way of creating an education GPS 
so that a learner who may have 20 years of work experience that is not credentialed, that is not codified by some sort of formal credential, can understand the kinds of skills and abilities they bring to the table and understand the adjacent domains that might be near what they've been doing and how they transfer that from one domain to another. They need to be able to see and get visibility that with my skill sets that I have from 20 years as a truck driver and 10 years of taking care of my mother with Alzheimer's, that I actually have this bundle of skill sets. And I also have a gap in terms of where I might want to take those skills. I'm 30% of the way there towards being an HR manager. I'm 20% of the way there towards being a project manager. I'm 50% of the way there towards being something else. We need to help our learners gain that sort of visibility so that they can, so that they can then figure out what are the right learning pathways to, to get me there. We also need ways of paying for this, right? If you think about the $170 billion that goes into employer formal training, 58% of it actually goes to people with a college degree. Only 17% goes to people with a high school degree only. If you think about our federal financial aid system, $160 billion is going into mostly younger college-going students. How in the world will we facilitate more seamless movements if we have no ways of paying for them? What are employers' roles here? How do we think about things like income share agreements? How do we think about portable learning benefits so we're not tied to, or portable, uh, portable benefits so that we're not tied to our employer just for our health care? We need ways that show us how to learn and help me learn, help us learn. And what I mean by that is some sort of precision education pathway plus the right kinds of human and tech-enabled 360-degree wraparound services, because our learners have higher needs. They need ways of finding transportation, childcare, navigating the public benefit system. And they also need the right kinds of experiential, just-in-time, hands-on learning experiences that give them the cluster of competencies to move on, to move, to move along their pathways. They also, our learners also need to understand that the learning pathway that they are picking is going to be understood by employers, prospective employers. They don't want to take a pathway that doesn't mean something to an employer. They have to be sure that the signal is actually being received and that there is this matching between the supply and the demand side. And then employers need to feel like they don't have to take a risk on someone, that they can feel confident in hiring this person even though they may not have a degree, but they have the skills for this job at hand. And job seekers need to feel that there's fairness and equity in these hiring processes and these decision-making processes. So what it comes down to is just five core elements around navigation, funding, precision education and supports, endorsement, and the opening of doors. Because we know today that the future is already here, right? It is just very unevenly distributed. That profound disconnect between the supply of talent and the demand of opportunity is deeply profound, right? And the opportunities ahead are vast for us to experiment and prototype towards this new virtuous cycle of learning and earning. But the opportunities ahead do not include our clinging to the status quo. We have had enough time to admire the problem. It is time to build. Thank you. For more information on what Michelle had to say, check out the book she co-authored with Clayton Christensen titled Hire, spelled H-I-R-E, Education. 
mastery, modulization, and the workforce revolution. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.